All right, everyone. You can grab a seat again and uh, online. Stop looking at your, uh, your Twitter, your texting or whatever. <laughs> um, we're now going to continue through our church's series on Paul's fourth letter to the Corinthians, which in our Bibles is called Second Corinthians. And here to read our text this morning is Philip. So Philip, come on up. Today's scripture reading is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 7 to 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Well, several months ago, my wife Erica and I enjoyed watching a Disney Plus TV series called WandaVision. Have you heard of it? WandaVision. I need, at this point, I need to give a shout out to the young adults at Grace Toronto, um, as well as some of the Power to Change students from Ryerson. You guys peer pressured us into it, and we thank you. <laughs> we really enjoyed it. Well, for those of you who aren't familiar with this series, WandaVision is a production of Marvel Studios. And so on a certain level, it's a story about superheroes, right? That's what Marvel makes. But that's not really what WandaVision is about. WandaVision is an exploration into grief and human suffering. I'm not going to give any spoilers this morning, but the protagonist, Wanda, is someone who has suffered significant losses in her life. And the way that she deals with her suffering, the way that she deals with her grief, is by trying to bury it, trying to suppress it, trying to pretend like it never happened at all. And she wants to project an image to the world that she is living her best life now, that she is in suburban domestic bliss. And as each episode of the show progresses, we start to see cracks forming in Wanda's narrative. Her attempt at burying her grief is starting to fail. I remember during the season finale looking at my wife and both of us had tears in our eyes. And I think the reason that WandaVision speaks 
so powerfully to us is because each and every person in this room, each and every person tuning in online this morning knows what it is to suffer. Each and every person that is watching the sermon right now, you know what it is to go through grief. Could be the grief of being bereaved of a loved one, a grandparent, a parent, a friend, a sibling, God forbid, a child. Could be the grief and the suffering that come with infertility. It could be the suffering of longing to be married and having that longing, that soul craving unfulfilled. Or it could be the the physical suffering of an ailment, a disease, a disability, chronic pain. And we could go on and on and on. But I know if you're listening right now, there's a heavy thing that's come to your mind. And we all know what it is to try to deal with our suffering and deal with our pain in different ways. Uh, In preparation for the sermon, I, I looked up again the five stages of grief. Denial, right? That's WandaVision right there. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And the text that we're looking at this morning, the Apostle Paul is engaging this very important topic of suffering. And he's, he's engaging the question, how does the Christian faith inform our experience of suffering? Now, before we dive in the text, I, I want to pause for a moment to give a bit of a disclaimer. I know that in a text, in, in a, a topic as wide-ranging and as profoundly personal as suffering, I cannot say all the important things that need to be said this morning. I'm also very aware that for those of you who have experienced or are experiencing real deep suffering, a sermon is not the proper medium of extending love and care to you. And so therefore, I hope my my modest aim this morning is to have a conversation starter on this topic. I don't want us to view the sermon as the final and definitive word, but rather as a conversation opener. And so with that more modest objective... Let's look at our passage for us this morning. Now, the reason that that the Apostle Paul wrote this section of 2 Corinthians is because the topic of suffering was a live discussion in the Corinthian church. They, They were asking questions about how does our faith inform our experience of suffering? And you know, I don't think much has changed in 2,000 years since that first conversation Because when we experience suffering today, we naturally ask questions, don't we? Why is this happening to me? I'm a good person. Is God punishing me for something? Where is God in this? Doesn't he care? Those are normal questions to wonder when we encounter suffering. Well, in the ancient Corinthian church, there were a number of Christians who had come to the theological persuasion that following Jesus should go hand in hand with a life free from all suffering. Following Jesus, being a Christian, should go hand in hand with a life free from pain, a life that was above trouble. It was an easy life, so they thought. And these Christians therefore concluded, you know, if that's what the Christian life is supposed to look like, then assuredly the apostles, the people that are closest to Jesus, They should be the poster children of this easy and good life. Well, in comes the Apostle Paul. He certainly doesn't look like he has an easy life. And so, 
the Corinthian church begins to murmur amongst itself. You know, is, is this really an authority we should be listening to if he has so missed the mark about what Christianity is all about? What on earth is Paul doing wrong? How does Paul respond to this? How does he respond to both that personal critique of his leadership and the theological understanding of suffering which underpins that critique? Well, look with me at verses 7 to 13. The Apostle Paul actually doubles down on his own experience of suffering and his own frailty. He describes himself as a fragile clay pot within which is hidden a valuable treasure. And Paul's using that image to communicate the idea that the power, the riches, they lie in the message, not the messenger. Paul then goes on to use a number of words to describe his Christian experience. He says he's afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, knocked down, struck down. These are not the kind of words which we would expect to go hand in hand with an easy life, are they? And in fact, later in this same letter to the Corinthians, Paul goes into great detail about the kinds of suffering he has endured in his life. And I actually think it's worthwhile for us this morning to hear Paul describing his life in his own words. And so we're going to look together, we're just going to jump a couple chapters ahead to 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 30. My vision is poor, and so I have trouble reading longer quotes, and, and so Pastor Dan has kindly agreed to read this section for us. So uh, please listen together. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the, at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of these things that show my weakness. Thank you, Pastor Dan. So the Apostle Paul points at his own life to communicate to the ancient Corinthian church and to communicate to us today that Christianity is not a way to escape from suffering. The Christian faith is not a way to escape from suffering. Indeed, Paul even points out that the fact that one is a Christian can be the thing that brings greater suffering. We see that played out in Paul's own life, and I think all of us can probably think of some examples of that. 
I think about one of my, um, one of my relatives who for years he wondered why he was being overlooked for promotions at his job. And finally, he discovered that there was a rumor circulating amongst his senior management that his Christian faith was going to make him an ineffective employee. It was nonsense, but it held him back for a number of years. I think about the many Christian women with whom I've interacted, and their desire is to be married to a Christian husband, and yet church statistics are against them in that desire. The church is approximately 60% female. I think about our brothers and sisters in countries like Somalia, Iran, and China, where simply practicing one's faith openly can have dire consequences. Christianity is not some escape hatch from suffering, and indeed, being a Christian can actually bring greater suffering into our lives. And you know, I think this theology, this understanding that following Jesus goes hand in hand with our best life now, an easy life, a life above suffering, I think that that very notion communicates to me that the Corinthians weren't looking hard enough at the person of Jesus. Because we know Isaiah the prophet described Jesus as despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We know that in the story of Jesus, shortly after his birth, his family had to flee as refugees to Egypt because the wickedness of King Herod was plotting to kill Jesus. When Jesus grew up and began his adult ministry, he was misunderstood. He was constantly confronted, challenged, and accosted by forces of evil. He was betrayed by one of his best friends. He was subject to an unjust trial of a kangaroo court, beaten and crucified. And those of us who would unite ourselves with Jesus are united to that story. His story becomes our story. We are united to a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And therefore, it should not surprise us when suffering comes our way too. Because Paul says in verse 10 that we carry in our own bodies the necrosis, the deadness, the mortification of Jesus. And so if Christianity doesn't help us escape from suffering... Of what benefit is our faith? You know, how does it speak to this important topic? Well, let's look back at the life of Paul. Remember, he described himself as um, he described himself as afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, and yet not crushed, not driven to despair, not forsaken not destroyed. When we look at Paul, we see resiliency in the face of real suffering. And the question then becomes, how can we likewise develop that resiliency as we experience our own moments of affliction and suffering? How can we experience the terrible hardships of life, whether it's a physical affliction, whether it's an emotional disaster, whether it's a period of mourning, how can we go through those without being crushed, destroyed, driven to utter despair? The key is verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus 
will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Resiliency amid suffering can only come as we fix our eyes on the resurrection of Jesus. The story of Jesus doesn't end on the cross. It continues into an empty tomb, a glorified body, and Jesus' ascension into heaven. And so those of us who are united to Jesus, goodness, I'm, I'm thinking of the baptism this morning of Ray. Those of us who are united to Jesus as Ray was this morning are united, yes, to a man of sorrows, but also to a man who conquered the grave. And that story likewise becomes our story. And so Paul is encouraging us, he's encouraging the Corinthian church and us today, fix our eyes upon that future reality. When we look around us, when we're in the midst of suffering, a mere moment can feel like an eternity of torment. And yet when we fix our eyes forward on the future hope of our resurrection with Jesus, we can look at this world and it becomes strangely dim by comparison. For those of us who are suffering physically, we can look forward to the hope that you will have a resurrected body, incorruptible, free of disease, free of pain. For those of us who are lamenting, weeping, brokenhearted, we can look forward to that day described in the book of Revelation where God will wipe away every tear. There will be no more mourning, no more lamenting, for the former things have passed away. And that is our hope in the midst of suffering. And we are a people who need hope. I think about um, another television show I've enjoyed recently from Apple TV, Ted Lasso. If you're familiar with Ted Lasso, it's the story of an American football coach who goes to coach an English football, a soccer team, in England, in the Premier League. And in the season finale, um, the team that Ted is coaching is facing relegation. And he comes into the locker room to talk to the guys before they go back on the pitch. And he says, y'all got a saying here. I ain't too crazy about it. It's the hope that kills you. I disagree. You know, I, I think it's the lack of hope that comes and gets you. You see, I believe in hope. I believe in belief. Where I come from, we got a saying too. It's a question, actually. Do you believe in miracles? And the answer of the Christian church throughout the centuries has been a resounding, yes, we do. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and we believe that we will be resurrected with him in a new creation. I'd like to close with the story of a hymn writer. He wrote uh, a very famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. His name is Horatio Spafford. Now, Horatio Spafford lived in uh, the mid-19th century with his wife and his five children in Chicago. He was an attorney and also very invested in real estate. In the year 1871, terrible tragedy struck the Spafford family. Out of his five children, he had only one son, a four-year-old, who 
who passed away that year from scarlet fever. That same year, there was a fire which ripped through the downtown heart of Chicago, destroying large swaths of the city. And so not only was there great human suffering around Spafford, remember, a lot of his money was tied up in real estate, and so his family lost a fortune. The Spaffords decided that they, they needed a break. They needed to get away from it all and sort of have a family reset. And so they decided to take a vacation to England to go listen to the preaching of D.L. Moody. Now, Spafford, had, he had a couple business dealings he had to close up in Chicago. And so his wife and his four daughters went ahead of him to England. And the plan was he was going to reconnect with him there. But on November 22nd, 1873, the ship carrying Spafford's wife and children collided with another sailing vessel in the North Atlantic. The side of the ship was ripped open, and icy water flooded the decks rapidly, pulling loved ones out of each other's arms and pulling them down into the icy blackness. There were 226 fatalities that night, including all four of Spafford's children. Annie, age 12, Maggie, age 7, Bessie, age 4, and Tanetta, 18 months of age. I think for those of us that are parents, we know that there can be no profound, no greater profound suffering. I can't even imagine it. Spafford, uh, his, his wife was found in the water barely conscious, and she was rescued, taken to England where she sent a telegram with two words to her husband, saved alone. Horatio Spafford booked the next ship to England to be with his wife, and um, one late evening in early December 1873, the captain called him into his quarters and said, Sir, I believe we're now passing over the exact spot where your family's ship went down. Spafford went back to his quarters where he wrote a rough draft of the hymn which would come to be known as It Is Well With My Soul. How can someone go through something like that without being utterly crushed? Obviously, he would carry that wound for the rest of his life, but his Christian faith gave him hope that there would be a day when he was raised and when his daughters were raised together and they would be seated together at a table of fellowship with Jesus Christ. That was his hope. And so I'd like to close by reading this beautiful hymn. And now that we know some of his story, I wonder if some of the imagery he uses will be more profound for us as we hear it. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And I think especially this last verse reflects the hope 
of Horatio Spafford and our hope. O Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Amen.